Hello, I'm Phil Farrow, Chief Meteorologist at WSBN-TV in South Florida, and this is Weather or Not. Our last marine edition was so popular, we brought it back this week. We're talking sharks and corals. Both are having a hard time surviving in the ocean. Pillar coral was already rare on Florida reefs, and now new data reveals it's become functionally extinct. Dr. Karen Neely from Nova Southeastern University, our coral expert, explains why coming up. Meteorologist Vivian Gonzalez has the update. Plus, some love them, others hate them, and many just fear them. We're talking sharks. And while some are doing okay, others not so much. Some fishermen may say they see a lot of sharks more than they used to. Yes, we are definitely having evidence that sharks are recovering due to management, but not all sharks are recovering as fast as other species. Meteorologist Erica Delgado with this story. That's all next on Weather or Not. A record storm season during a pandemic made 2020 unforgettable. This year, count on the seven weather team once again to do what we do best, keep you safe. The latest alerts, the best coverage. That's why we're the Storm Station, 7 News. Corals are beautiful living animals that act as a thermometer, taking the temperature, if you will, of the ocean's health. When they die, something is wrong. Vivian Gonzalez tells us about one species considered gone. Once again, we have our coral expert, Dr. Karen Neely from Nova Southeastern University, based in the Florida Keys. And in our last podcast, we talked about sick coral just off the Florida coast and how they're being treated successfully with a simple antibiotic that's been around for decades, known as amoxicillin. Now we bring her back to talk about a specific type of coral, pillar coral, and how now biologists say it's extinct. Thank you for joining us again, Karen. Thanks for having me, Vivian. I appreciate it. And I believe the last time we had a conversation, you told me that your work specifically started with pillar coral. Yeah. Um, so I had been working with corals for, uh, gosh, several decades now, but we had started a really targeted pillar coral monitoring project. Um, because pillar coral are relatively rare on the reef track, they're really hard to pick up in normal monitoring programs. And so in order to assess rare species, you often have to be very targeted in finding those rare species. Um, and so this had sort of started as just an assessment of the population. What was out there? How was it doing? Um, and unfortunately, we sort of documented this tragic decline. Um, it's probably one of the, the better documented specific coral declines in the world, um, which is unfortunate for, you know, the, this uh, mental health, I guess. It's really hard to watch this happen, but I think it tells a really good story and is important for understanding what's happening to all of the other coral reef species. This is sort of the canary in the coal mine. Um, and because we have such good data to tell that story, I, I think that is really helpful for understanding what's happening to other corals as well. So when people go out diving or snorkeling and may not be as experienced, how can they identify pillar coral? So pillar coral is, is pretty iconic. It's unlike any other coral that we have in the Caribbean. 
Um, so for starters, it is, it's a hard coral. So a lot of what we see when you're out diving or snorkeling are those sort of wavy octocorals that, that blow around in the current. But the hard corals are, are much more like kind of colorful rocks. Um, but they are animals and pillar coral in particular is the only coral that forms these sort of tall columns uh, that sometimes make them look like, like castles out on the reef. Um, they're also one of the only corals that has their polyps out during the day. Uh, so they look kind of fuzzy. And those are two of the easiest ways to distinguish pillar corals. And would you be able to explain the role or the job of pillar coral and basically their role on the reef ecosystem? Yeah, all stony corals are important for making the reef and pillar coral is no exception to that. It's a reef builder. Um, it creates that hard structure that's so important for habitat for fish and for lobsters and for all of the other reef organisms. Um, it's important for the shoreline protection um, and just for providing the diversity and the beauty of the reef. Uh, I was just reading another report out of uh, the Caribbean where one of the um, one of the authors had asked local lobster fishermen where the pillar corals were and they knew better than almost anyone where these corals were because that was where the lobsters were. Um, so that, that's a good example of how they provide this important habitat. And what does it exactly mean that pillar coral are functionally extinct? So I first want to clarify that, that we're only talking about Florida here. When we're talking about extinction of a whole species, um, that right. really means worldwide. And, and what we're dealing with here in Florida is a local extinction. However, the problems that are present here for pillar coral in Florida are spreading throughout the Caribbean. So this is sort of a cautionary tale to other parts of the region that uh, this species is headed towards extinction uh, if, if other places sort of follow that same demise that we've seen here in Florida. Um, but functionally extinct basically means that there are a few individuals here and there throughout Florida or small pieces of tissue that have survived these stresses that the species has been undergoing. Um, but it's not, it's not gonna reproduce. It's not fulfilling its role in the ecosystem anymore. It's really just a, a remnant population that uh, isn't really contributing to the future of the species. Now, it must have been very difficult to come to that conclusion that pillar coral have become functionally extinct along the Florida reef track. Now, how was that determined? Like, what type of analysis was done to make that determination? Well, the data are very clear on what, what has happened to pillar coral. Um, you know, we've lost upwards of 90% of pillar corals just since 2013. Um, and we measure that in a bunch of different ways. We can look at the amount of tissue, we can look at the number of colonies, we can look at the number of genotypes that have become extinct, um, but they all really show the same data more or less is that this species uh, was once more common than it is now and, and that now there's really no chance of this species recovering on its own without any sort of intervention. And what is the population status of pillar coral now? Oh, I would have to check our most recent data, but it's it's less than probably two dozen colonies throughout Florida. Um, and a lot of those are currently uh, undergoing mortality. So there are corals that are still alive out there, but that are currently diseased. And we know that we're losing them imminently. Um, so it's, it's really quite low. 
And, and speaking of disease, we know that stony coral tissue loss disease has been around for a few years now, but there are other reasons for the decline of pillar coral, other stressors that have played a role in the demise of pillar coral here along the Florida reef tract. Absolutely. Uh, so pillar coral has probably never been a very common species. Um, they're what we sometimes call sprinkle species. They're not the major reef builders, but they're out there and, and you see them on dives here and there. Um, so it's not like we've gone from the most abundant species ever to nothing. Um, but we know that over the past several decades, uh, they have been susceptible to diseases that have been around for decades or longer. Um, and also coral bleaching, which is where essentially the water gets too warm and uh, these corals can perish. And so those are all stressors that have been happening for a, a long period of time. Stony coral tissue loss disease is sort of the latest nail in the coffin for this species. And when it appeared in 2014, it was pretty quickly apparent that, stone, um, that pillar coral was extremely susceptible to stony coral tissue loss disease. And that is really what, uh, what helped wipe out a species that was already dealing with a lot of stressors. Now, that's certainly serious that this species of coral really can't serve the reef ecosystem as it's been intended to any longer. And I can imagine that studying pillar coral closely, you get to know them through time and, and their unique appearances and their structures must stand out. How has it been like to watch this species kind of die out? This has been a really heartbreaking project. Um, being a, a coral biologist almost never uh, is optimistic. Um, we know that reefs throughout the world have been in decline for uh, decades, if not longer. Um, but this one was really kind of close to home because we were surveying each individual colony with some level of frequency and we were doing coral spawning with these species. So we were spending a lot of time with them and you, you definitely do sort of get to know them and it's really hard to go back and see them not there anymore. Um, I, I had a friend comment that she was really sorry when, really sorry for me when our paper came out and I said, well, it's really everybody's loss. And, and she said, well, it is, but I know what it's like to go back to somewhere and your friends aren't there anymore. And uh, I thought that was a really poignant way of putting this is that a place that you sort of have gotten to know and, and expect to be a certain level of beauty just isn't that way anymore. And what is their appearance like now for those who may be diving or, or snorkeling and trying to get a glimpse of these coral? So like all stony coral, they, they do make a hard skeleton. And so those pillars are still intact. You can go out and see these sort of castle-like pillars sticking up off of the reef. And that is what used to be a pillar coral. Um, as time goes on, those pillars will break due to storms. Um, there's obviously no live tissue there to sort of help protect and continue to grow those skeletons. And so they, they sort of decay over time and just start to look like other rocks on the reef. Um, but for a while, there are still pillars that are present and providing some habitat for, for some fish. Now, I know you've been actively working on trying to help pillar corals through spawning projects long before stony coral tissue loss disease ever came around. So what are the current ongoing missions? So I, I mentioned that it's hard to be a coral biologist, that there's rarely any good news. Um, but in this case, there, there is. This is sort of a, 
a project that we started back in 2015 when we realized that this species was really in trouble. And uh, so we started thinking about the future of this species, not one year or even five years down the road, but 10 years and 100 years down the road, and started a couple of projects to, to think about what restoration and the future of this species might be. Um, so one of these was assisted reproduction. Um, these corals have always been quite far apart from each other, and particularly as they decline, the distances between live corals get farther and farther apart. And so we were out in the field doing some work during coral spawning and, and collecting the gametes when they spawned and bringing them together on boats and mixing them to fertilize and make baby pillar corals. Um, and so that went on for a few years until we essentially ran out of wild pillar corals. Um, but concurrently with that, we were also doing a pillar coral rescue project. And so bringing in individuals, uh, fragments of individuals into protective care. And so we've been working with aquariums and government agencies and nonprofit groups um, throughout Florida and into South Carolina who took some of these individuals and gave them a safe place that was protected from disease and coral bleaching and were able to help them grow. Um, and Florida Aquarium Center for Conservation in particular really took on the project of seeing if they could make these individuals spawn in captivity um, and did so to great success. And so sort of as we were unable to continue this spawning work in the wild, they really took the reins and have run with being able to make pillar corals spawn in their aquariums and, and make hundreds of baby pillar corals, which is far more than we have out in the wild right now. So, um, you know, most of what remains of Florida's pillar coral population is in protected nurseries and aquariums and the future of those next generation uh, lies within those facilities. And, and we're really excited that this species had such a tragic decline in the wild, but isn't gone um, and is far from forgotten because we have provided a future for it. it. It's great to hear that there's hope for pillar coral really. And can any be transplanted back in, onto the reef? That's absolutely the goal. Um, all of these individuals that were brought on shore are being used to, to grow out additional tissue um, and to create these baby corals. And one day we hope to be able to put those back out on the reef. Um, that day might be a little bit more distant than we would hope. Um, we certainly need to figure out what's happening with stony coral tissue loss disease and make sure that we're not just throwing baby corals out to sacrifice to uh, the ocean and to disease, we wanna make sure that we set them up for success and put them back into an environment where they can thrive. Um, but that will happen one day. And, and that's sort of been the goal of all of this. I also think people should be aware about the history and importance of a coral species. And um, that leads to my next question. What can we do to help the coral reef ecosystem as a community, as a collective effort here along the Florida reef track, because a lot of impact is man-made. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, so we often talk about coral demise as being death by a thousand cuts. It's very hard to point a finger at one single thing that's causing coral death. Um, and even stony coral tissue loss disease, I, I called it the nail in the coffin, but there were a lot of other components that that helped build that coffin and our other nails. So um, everything from water quality to climate change 
to uh, sort of conservation related snorkeling and boating and diving, all of those things will help corals. So we need to you know, think about reef safe sunscreen. We need to think about where we anchor. We need to think about reducing our carbon footprint and how we can keep our waters clean. Um, and that includes everything from marine debris to fertilizer on your lawn. You know, all of that ends up in our oceans and, and has impacts on this ecosystem. So, you know, anything that, that individuals can do to um, reduce climate change or improve water quality is only gonna help these individual corals and, and our reef system, which is so important for our, our uh, quality of life here in Florida. Absolutely. Thank you so much for bringing your expertise to our podcast. Well, thank you, Vivian. I appreciate you and all of your listeners and your interest in this topic. Absolutely. Hopefully we can bring you back in and, and talk some more. Anytime. Appreciate the opportunity. For Weather or Not, I'm meteorologist Vivian Gonzalez. Thanks, Vivian. The best app from the best weather team is right here. Seven's Hurricane Tracker app. Get the latest forecast models. My Seven weather blog. And of course, Seven's cone on your phone. It's yours free from the Storm Station 7 News. Welcome back. Sharks are the janitors of the sea. They eat the dead and the dying and help keep our oceans clean. From time to time, one makes a mistake and bites a human being. That's why we fear them. Some folks would like to see them gone altogether, others not so much. Here's Erica Delgado to explain. Sharks. One of the ocean's most respected predators are probably also one of the most feared sea creatures in the ocean. And while many of us think there is an abundance of sharks in the water, you'd be surprised to know that the shark population has actually been on the decline I had the opportunity to speak with a NOAA research fish biologist that was able to clear some things up about our sharky friends and contrary to what many of us believe, said that sharks as a species are not as dangerous as we may think. Here's what he had to say. Joining me today to dive a little further into sharks is research fish biologist John Carlson with the NOAA Fisheries Southeast Fisheries Science Center. Hi, John. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us. Let's dive right in. Good morning. So tell us a little bit about the importance of sharks in the overall ecosystem, the ocean. Well, sharks, like you know, everything in the ocean, has an important ecological role. Um, in some cases, these animals represent top predators. Um, and in many cases, they're also found throughout the middle of the food web. So like all marine organisms, sharks play an integral role in the dynamics of marine ecosystems. Okay, and you mentioned a predator. As a marine predator, would the loss of sharks from the oceans, uh, you mentioned some of these ecological um, factors, but what would be the consequences of losing sharks or if there would be an underabundance of it? Well, see, we, we have to look at this by an ecosystem perspective. In some cases, the loss of sharks may have some significant, what we call trophic, trophic cascades, where the loss of the top predator may cause another prey item, you know, that's found in that same ecosystem to suddenly increase. However, in other ecosystems that we've seen through some modeling exercises is that sharks, when they are removed from the ecosystem, the ecosystem doesn't have that cascading effect. And the reason for that is, is that sharks are not the only top predator in many of these ecosystems. And if sharks are lost, although the loss of sharks is not good one way or the other, 
there are other predators that will fill that same ecological role as sharks. So it's very ecosystem dependent, depending on what happens within that ecosystem if sharks suddenly you know, disappear. But in any event, you know, the loss of sharks is not a good thing. So I've been reading that in the last 50 years, shark abundance has actually declined by more than 70%, possibly due to overfishing and, and maybe even ocean warming. However, I've also heard, you know, many fishermen say that there's a shark overpopulation and that they're actually their biggest competitor out in the water when trying to catch other fish. Do you think either of the statements are accurate? Well, I was on the publication that documented a 70% decline. And this was for this was for pelagic species. And this was overall, this was for a group of pelagic species when we looked at them as a whole. When we have to look about sharks, we have to kind of look it out, look at it from a species-specific perspective, because in some cases, many sharks are doing very well. The black tip shark, which is found in the Atlantic Ocean in the Gulf of Mexico here in the United States, is a, is a species that I can think of that's doing very well. Other species that are not doing so well are things like the dusky shark. And the reason that they're not doing so well is in the 70s and 80s, these animals were fished very heavily, um, primarily for their meat and for their fins. But due to their life history, they've been very slow to recover, although management actions have been in place. In fact, dusky sharks are a prohibited species. You can't catch them commercially or recreationally and keep them. But just because of their life history, they don't reach sexual maturity, maturity excuse me, until 20 years old. They give birth to young about every three years to very few offspring. So that basic life history, although they are prohibited, just doesn't allow them to recover very rapidly. Some fishermen may say they see a lot of sharks more than they used to. Yes, we are definitely having evidence that sharks are recovering due to management, but not all sharks are recovering as fast as other species. So it could also be maybe more of a regional thing, like you said, depending on what type it of shark. Be a, yeah, it could be a regional thing. It could be a species specific thing. So, you know, it's hard to lump all species together and say all sharks are in decline because that's not necessarily true because some are doing very well and some are doing not so well. And then you can, you really, on the flip side of that, you can't say that all shark populations are healthy. You know, it's funny that you're saying that, you know, just kind of comparing the different species of sharks and, you know, overall people on land tend to kind of group sharks in just one category and not really think about the fact that there are so many types. And over the years, oh, yes. I feel like over the years, the, the public, they've gained such a, a negative perception, I guess, of sharks. Sure. I mean, and a lot of it started with the movie Jaws. You know, we have what we call the Jaws effect where, you know, just the automatic thought of, you know, being in the water with a shark makes makes people think that they're, you know, going to be attacked. But when you look at the statistics, I always tell people that, you know, you have a better chance of being injured driving to the beach than you do being injured by a shark when you're at the ocean. Wow. That's actually, that's really interesting because, you know, as we just mentioned, you know, obviously shark attacks, they've gained a lot of attention in the public. Now, possibly because when there is a shark attack, it usually doesn't end so well. But, you know, overall, is there anything that the public can do to avoid shark attacks while swimming in the water? Oh, yes, we, we definitely have a set of recommendations that we, you know, give to the public when they come here. The place that I live, Panama City Beach, is a very popular tourist destination. You know, we have, you know, some specific recommendations that we give to people to go to the beach. I mean, the first thing is when a shark bites a person, it does it by mistake. You know, humans are not part of their natural prey or diet. So it's making a mistake. And how does a shark make a mistake? Well, it confuses a person for its natural prey. One way that it does that is we tell people to try to avoid swimming at times of the day when it's when the light is low, so the visibility in the water is poor, or in water conditions that you know the water is very turbid or, or the visibility is very low. 
Because what happens is, you know, as a person sitting in the water kicking, and think about in low visibility, the bottom of your foot. Your bottom of your foot is white. That contrasts very sharply in water that's very murky, and it looks like a shark for, to a shark, like a wounded prey. And this is why, in many cases, people are either bit in the foot, the calf, or the thigh, because that's the general area where they see that flashing in the water. Right. Same holds true of the people that might wear jewelry. Jewelry in the water is flashing. And if you're a fisherman, what do you, what's a lot of lures that you do? What do they do? They flash. Why do they flash? Because it's supposed to look like a wounded fish. We also tell people to try to avoid swimming in areas where somebody might be fishing. Now, this person may not necessarily be fishing for sharks, but if they catch, say, you know, a bluefish or some other, you know, game fish, they're fighting that game fish. The game fish is struggling. That may attract a shark into the area. And again, the shark may mistake the human for what it's looking for with that, that that fisherman is catching. So see, these are some of the general guidelines we give to people when they go in swimming. But again, when you look at the overall statistics, you know, like I said, the first is, you know, you have a better chance of being injured, um, you know, driving to the beach. Um, you know, a few years ago, there was a host of statistics put together where you have a better chance of being injured by a lawnmower, being struck by lightning. Um, in some cases, you have a better chance of being hit by a falling television stat than you do being attacked by a shark. It's actually kind of cool and helpful when they do come out with these statistics because it's kind of something that people here on land can actually there's, they're, they're easier to make reference to it when you use things like, you know, a, a light pole or, or lightning striker, you know, driving to yeah. the beach versus shark attack, something that's very unknown, I guess, to the average person. Um, you mentioned, right. you know, that humans really aren't what they usually prey on. But um, is there a time where maybe like a feeding time during the day um, where they kind of come out more or maybe they tend to make those mistakes other than the murky waters and, and maybe low well, sun angle? Yeah, I mean, many, many species exhibit, you know, we, what we call this crepuscular feeding activity where they feed more at dawn and at dusk. Some sharks do that. I shouldn't say that all sharks do that. I mean, we've looked at a lot of our survey data, you know, when we catch sharks and sometimes it makes no difference whatsoever. We can catch them at midnight or we can catch them in the middle of the afternoon. So, but like many, you know, people that are, are avid fishermen, you know, they usually try to go out at dawn because that's when, you know, the fish really start biting. And, you know, sharks sometimes, some sharks follow that pattern as well. But it also realigns with what I was saying to you earlier is about those are the times of the day also when visibility is poor, is most poor. But no one's really teased out and really looked at that in a lot of detail. You know, something I just thought of, and I, I've read this, and I've, I've you know, I've, I've, I had a dollar for every time someone told this to me. <laughs> I think <laughs> I'd have uh, quite some of dollars in those in the bank account. But I've always been told that, that sharks can sense fear. Now, do you think that they can actually sense fear or do you just no. think our body language begins no. to uh, mimic our fear and maybe they're just, you know, we're acting a little no, crazy in the water. It's the same thing when, you know, they, they you know, when you go up and, and, you know, see a friendly dog and you know, the dog suddenly cows you, oh, the dog sense you're afraid of it. Like, no, no. <laughs> No. <laughs> There's no evidence of that. <laughs> oh, I'm glad. I'm glad we cleared that up. We talked earlier about actual fishing, overfishing for sharks. Is that actually legal anywhere in the world? Legal like actually, actually like fishing for sharks. You talked about like fin. Um, well, yeah, I, mean, I mean, in the United States, it's legal. You can recreationally fish for sharks. There is a commercial quota for sharks. Um, many countries have shark fisheries, but some are not regulated as strictly as the United States as in others. Interesting. And as far as other marine mammals, do you think there are any that actually pose a bigger threat to humans than, than sharks? No, I, I mean, I mean, every, in, for, in certain cases, you know, any marine animals, you know, going back to the statistics, um, more people are, are injured by, by jellyfish. 
Okay. So and, and if you look at if you looked at the statistics, you know, jellyfish are more dangerous to humans than sharks are. Interesting. You know, people are getting stung by jellyfish and some people have very s- serious reactions to being stung by jellyfish. So in that case, you know, marine animals that are, you know, more dangerous than sharks, although I don't consider sharks dangerous to humans, just because when you look at the overall statistics, it's very low. Humans have been attacked, but again, it's a mistake or, you know, in some cases, the person antagonized the shark. There's cases where in the Florida Keys where um, nurse sharks, which is a, a demersal species that lays on the bottom, people have gone up waiting, grabbed them by the tail. Well, guess what? The shark turned around and bit him. Or her. Well, I mean, if someone grabbed me by the tail, I think I'd probably do the same as the sharks. Yeah. So I don't blame yeah. them. So overall, what I'm hearing from you is, yes, that there has been a decline, but also that sharks maybe aren't as dangerous to swim with as people really perceive them to be. Yeah, I mean, it, again, following some general safety precautions that I outlined earlier, it's, it's still, you know, there's still a lot more things in the ocean that, that can hurt you than a shark. Of course. And of course, just like anything else, just reading up on it before you do anything will always help just kind of uh, educate you a little bit more. Exactly. You know, we always tell people the ocean is not your swimming pool. Exactly. John, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us and for clearing up any misconceptions we may have had in the past of our our sharky friends. We'll talk again soon. Okay. Thank you. The Seven Weather Team would like to thank John Carlson and the rest of our friends at the NOAA Fisheries Southeast Fisheries Science Center for taking the time to clear up any misconceptions we may have had about sharks. Thank you, Erica. Next week on Weather or Not, we aim for the stars. In this case, our star. The sun, the one thing that seems to be constantly shining bright in the sky. But the energy given off by the sun is not always the same. There are fluctuations from this energy as solar activity goes up and down, leading to extreme space weather. Next week on Weather or Not, I talk to Dr. Alex Young, Associate Director for Science in the Heliophysics Division at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. As we explore the sun's recent spike in activity, how it affects us on Earth and current missions. Meteorologist Vivian Gonzalez lets the sun shine in. That's in our next edition, which drops August 31st. If you have a question that we can answer on an upcoming podcast or have a comment, please send me an email at pfarrow at wsvn.com. Also, it would be really nice if you would subscribe to our podcast. You can always follow us on Twitter and Facebook at 7weather and, of course, live on air at WSVN7. Thanks for joining us. Please tell your friends about us. We need all the listeners we can get. Until next time, I'm Chief Meteorologist Phil Farrell.